Thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes, a primer of feminist writings of the past 500 years. In this episode, we are reflecting on A Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. Much more can be said on the life of Wollstonecraft and the events that shaped her into the founding mother of modern feminism than can be reasonably included in this podcast. Context, I think, however, is key to understanding Vindication and why she wrote it. Mary Wollstonecraft was born in London in 1759. Though initially her family were financially comfortable, her father squandered the money and terrorized his wife and children. When Wollstonecraft was 19, she escaped her unhappy home and made several attempts at earning her own living through the typical employment options open to women of the day, ladies maid, teacher, and governess. At 28, Wollstonecraft decided to become an author, the first of a new genus, as she would write to her sister. Wollstonecraft moved to London and found work translating texts and support for her own work through a publisher. Across the Channel, revolution was rocking the French monarchy and aristocracy and spreading its influence throughout Europe and into America. Wollstonecraft was enamored with the idea of the revolution and the social changes it promised. In 1790, she wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Men, a political pamphlet celebrating the revolutionary spirit that had engulfed France and an indictment of Edmund Burke's anti-revolutionary publication. This was very much a time of intense social turbulence in which opposing ideologies were warring over the status quo, perhaps not unlike our own time. In 1792, Wollstonecraft followed her pamphlet with A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which is dedicated, most undeservingly, to Monsieur Talleyrand Perigord, an influential politician in the New French Republic. It was her hopes, I believe, that this fresh wind of revolution would include greater equality for women. Wollstonecraft soon moved to Paris to glory in the revolution and to fight further for the rights of women in a climate she may have seen as open to, if not equality, at least the education of women. An excerpt from Chapter 3 of A Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. To preserve personal beauty... Women's glory, the limbs and faculties are cramped with worse than Chinese bands, and the sedentary life which they are condemned to live, whilst boys frolic in the open air, weakens the muscles and relaxes the nerves. As for Rousseau's remarks, which have since been echoed by several writers, that they have naturally, that is from their birth, independent of education, a fondness for dolls, dressing and talking, They are so puerile as to not merit a serious refutation. That a girl, condemned to sit for hours together listening to the idle chat of weak nurses, or to attend at her mother's toilet, will endeavour to join the conversation, is indeed very natural, and that she will imitate her mother or aunts and amuse herself by adorning her lifeless doll, as they do in dressing her, poor innocent babe, is undoubtedly a most natural consequence. For men of the greatest abilities have seldom had sufficient strength 
to rise above the surrounding atmosphere. And, if the page of genius has always been blurred by the prejudices of the age, some allowance should be made for a sex who, like kings, always sees things through a false medium. In this manner may the fondness for dress, conspicuous in women, be easily accounted for, without supposing it the result of a desire to please the sex on which they are dependent. The absurdity, in short, of supposing that a girl is naturally a coquette, and that a desire connected with the impulse of nature to propagate the species should appear even before an improper education has, by heating the imagination, called it forth prematurely, is so unphilosophical that such a sagacious observer as Rousseau would not have adopted it, if he had not been accustomed to make reason give way to his desire of singularity and truth to a favorite paradox. Yet thus to give a sex to mind was not very consistent with the principles of a man who argued so warmly and so well for the immortality of the soul. But what a weak barrier is truth when it stands in the way of a hypothesis. Rousseau respected, almost adored virtue, and yet allowed himself to love with sensual fondness. His imagination constantly prepared inflammable fuel for his inflammable senses. But in order to reconcile his respect for self-denial, fortitude, and those heroic virtues, which a mind like his could not coolly admire, he labors to invert the law of nature, and broaches a doctrine pregnant with mischief and derogatory to the character of supreme wisdom. His ridiculous stories, which tend to prove that girls are naturally attentive to their persons, without laying any stress on daily example, are below contempt, and that a little miss should have such a correct taste as to neglect the pleasing amusement of making O's, merely because she perceived that it was an ungraceful attitude, should be selected with the anecdotes of the learned pig. Footnote. Excerpt from Rousseau's Emilius. I once knew a young person who learned to write before she learned to read, and began to write with her needle before she could use a pen. At first, indeed, she took it into her head to make no other letter than the O. This letter she was constantly making of all sizes, and always the wrong way. Unluckily, one day, as she was intent on this employment, she happened to see herself in the looking-glass, when, taking a dislike to the constrained attitude in which she sat while writing, she threw away her pen, like another palace, and determined against making the O any more. Her brother was also equally averse to writing. It was the confinement, however, and not the constrained attitude that most disgusted him. Footnote 2. Learned Pig refers to a common sideshow curiosity popular at 18th century festivals. I have, probably, had an opportunity of observing more girls in their infancy than J.J. Rousseau. I can recollect my own feelings, and I have looked steadily around me. Yet, so far from coinciding with him in opinion respecting the first dawn of the female character, I will venture to affirm that a girl, whose spirits have not been dampened by inactivity or innocence tainted by false shame, will always be a romp, and the doll will never excite attention unless confinement allows her no alternative. 
Girls and boys, in short, would play harmless together if the distinction of sex was not inculcated long before nature makes any difference. I will go further and affirm as an indisputable fact that most of the women in the circle of my observation who have acted like rational creatures or shown any vigor of intellect have accidentally been allowed to run wild as some of the elegant formers of the fair sex would insinuate. The baneful consequences which flow from inattention to health during infancy and youth extend further than is supposed. Dependence of body naturally produces dependence of mind. And how can she be a good wife or mother, the greater part of whose time is employed to guard against or endure sickness? Nor can it be expected that a woman will resolutely endeavor to strengthen her constitution and abstain from enervating indulgences, if artificial notions of beauty and false descriptions of sensibility have been early entangled with her motives of action. Most men are sometimes obliged to bear with bodily inconveniences and to endure, occasionally, the inclemency of the elements. But genteel women are, literally speaking, slaves to their bodies and glory in their subjection. I once knew a weak woman of fashion, who was more than commonly proud of her delicacy and sensibility. She thought a distinguishing taste and puny appetite the height of all human perfection, and acted accordingly. I have seen this weak, sophisticated being neglect all the duties of life, yet recline with self-complacency on a sofa, and boast of her want of appetite as a proof of delicacy that extended to, or perhaps arose from, her exquisite sensibility for it is difficult to render intelligible such ridiculous jargon. Yet, at the moment, I have seen her insult a worthy old gentlewoman, whom unexpected misfortunes had made dependent on her ostentatious bounty, and who, in better days, had claims on her gratitude. Is it possible that a human creature should have become such a weak and depraved being? If, like the Sybarites, dissolved in luxury, every thing like virtue had not been worn away, or never impressed by precept? A poor substitute it is true for cultivation of mind, though it serves as a fence against vice. Such a woman is not a more irrational monster than some of the Roman emperors, who were depraved by lawless power. Yet, since kings have been more under the restraint of law, and the curb, however weak, of honor, the records of history are not filled with such unnatural instances of folly and cruelty, nor does the despotism that kills virtue and genius in the bud hover over Europe with that destructive blast which desolates Turkey and renders the men, as well as the soil, unfruitful. Women are everywhere in this deplorable state, for, in order to preserve their innocence, as ignorance is courteously termed, truth is hidden from them, and they are made to assume an artificial character before their faculties have acquired any strength. Taught from infancy that beauty is women's scepter, the mind shapes itself to the body, and roaming round its gilt cage, only seeks to adorn its prison. Men have various employments and pursuits which engage their attention, and give a character to the opening mind. But women, confined to one, and having their thoughts constantly directed to the most insignificant part of themselves, 
seldom extend their views beyond the triumph of the hour. But was their understanding, once emancipated from the slavery to which the pride and sensuality of man and their short-sighted desire, like that of dominion and tyrants, of present sway, has subjected them, we should probably read of their weaknesses with surprise. I must be allowed to pursue the argument a little farther. Perhaps, if the existence of an evil being was allowed, who, in the allegorical language of scripture, went about seeking whom he should devour, he could not more effectually degrade the human character than by giving a man absolute power. This argument branches into various ramifications, birth, riches, and every intrinsic advantage that exalt a man above his fellows, without any mental exertion, sink him in reality below them. In proportion to his weakness, he is played upon by designing men, till the bloated monster has lost all traces of humanity. And that tribes of men, like flocks of sheep, should quietly follow such a leader, is a solecism that only a desire of present enjoyment and narrowness of understanding can solve. Educated in slavish dependence, and enervated by luxury and sloth, where shall we find men who will stand forth to assert the rights of man, or claim the privilege of moral beings, who should have but one road to excellence? Slavery to monarchs and ministers, which the world will be long in freeing itself from, and whose deadly grasp stops the progress of the human mind, is not yet abolished. Let not men then, in the pride of power, use the same arguments that tyrannic kings and venal ministers have used, and fallaciously assert that woman ought to be subjected because she has always been so. But when man, governed by reasonable laws, enjoys his natural freedom, let him despise woman if she do not share it with him, and, till that glorious period arrives, in discounting on the folly of the sex, let him not overlook his own. Women, it is true, obtaining power by unjust means, by practicing or fostering vice, evidently lose the rank which reason would assign them, and they become either abject slaves or capricious tyrants. They lose all simplicity, all dignity of mind, in acquiring power, and act as men are observed to act when they have been exalted by the same means. It is time to effect a revolution in female manners, time to restore them to their lost dignity, and make them, as a part of the human species, labor by reforming themselves to reform the world. It is time to separate unchangeable morals from local manners. If men be demigods, why let us serve them? And if the dignity of the female soul be as disputable as that of animals? If their reason does not afford sufficient light to direct their conduct whilst unerring instinct is denied, they are, surely of all creatures, the most miserable and, bent beneath the iron hand of destiny, must submit to be a fair defect in creation. But to justify the ways of providence respecting them, by pointing out some irrefragable reason for thus making such a large portion of mankind accountable and not accountable, would puzzle the subtlest casuist. The only solid foundation for morality appears to be the character of the supreme being, the harmony of which arises from a balance of attributes. And, to speak with reverence, one attribute seems to imply the necessity of another, 
He must be just because he is wise. He must be good because he is omnipotent. For to exalt one attribute at the expense of another equally noble and necessary bears the stamp of the warped reason of man, the homage of passion. Man, accustomed to bow down to power in his savage state, can seldom divest himself of this barbarous prejudice even when civilization determines how much superior mental is to bodily strength, and his reason is clouded by these crude opinions, even when he thinks of the deity. His omnipotence is made to swallow up or preside over his other attributes, and those mortals are supposed to limit his power irreverently, who think that it must be regulated by his wisdom. I disclaim that species of humility, which, after investigating nature, stops at the author, the high and lofty one, who inhabiteth eternity, doubtless possesses many attributes of which we can form no conception. But reason tells me that they cannot clash with those I adore, and I am compelled to listen to her voice. Mary Wollstonecraft's tenure in the City of Light did not, as one can expect, go well. Far from being the glorious revolution that Wollstonecraft and many other supporters had imagined, the revolution quickly deteriorated into the reign of terror, fueled by paranoia, fear, and the need for ultimate control. Wollstonecraft was, ironically, considered by the powers that be a threat to the revolution, which, given the times, was probably not that notable, as almost everyone was considered a threat. However, in Vindication, Wollstonecraft attacks many of the philosophers and writers that inspired the National Convention of the First French Republic and its constitution, most notably Rousseau. Wollstonecraft came back to London and tried to reignite a failing romance that she had begun in Paris with a man called Gilbert Imlay, a sort of rep butler of the French Revolution. Imlay was the father of her first daughter, Fanny, whom she had given birth to in Paris. Rejected, Wollstonecraft attempted suicide by throwing herself in the River Thames, but was rescued by a passerby. Once recovered and healing her broken heart, she was reconnected with William Godwin, whom she fell in love with and gave birth to Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, who would, of course, grow up to become Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, which I am sure I will cover at some point in this series. I like Mary Wollstonecraft. I like her courage, her obvious genius, her resourcefulness, and her wit. I love her vulnerability and fallibility as a woman. I feel reading about her like I am reading about someone I can relate to, someone kindred, capable of both profound insights and profoundly poor judgment. Thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes. You can find more information on Mary Wollstonecraft on the website. A link is in the show notes, along with a link to our Facebook page and email address, should you wish to comment on the book or the podcast. The next episode will be Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, the autobiographical account of African-American feminist Harriet Jacobs. That episode will be available as of Sunday, November the 1st. That is the day after I launch a second podcast series, Conversations in Witchcraft. For more information on both, 
visit feralculturelab.com. A link is, of course, in the show notes. And thank you again for listening. Thank you.